Welcome back to There Are Three of Me. I'm Gabrielle Lawson, Heine Coriel, and Philippe de Lamatrac. And we've been reading Philippe's first story, Alien Us. And we're now ready for chapter 15. Let's get started. Star Trek Enterprise Alien Us by Philippe de Lamatrac. Chapter 15. Lasea Catan was one of the last century's biggest actors. Though a Tunisian, his films were popular even in the Jiren capital, on the black market. Given the last century ended 20 years ago, but it was recent enough that everybody, whether or not they liked the actor, knew exactly who he was. Lasea had conveniently become a bit of a recluse. He hadn't made a film in more than five turns. He was not a present star, as actors went, but a waning superstar, which made him perfect for Jenna's plan. "'Are you certain about this, Major?' Kaifa asked. Jenna was confident. "'Doctor, what are our possible outcomes?' Kaifa sighed. "'No one hears it.' "'In which case there are no consequences.' Kaifa sighed again. "'Or someone does here, and we start a global frenzy.' Jenna laughed. Worst case, his spokesman informs the media of the truth. And someone mounts an investigation as to who began the lie. Jenna clapped him on the shoulder. And what will they find? It will be over before they have a chance to even decide to trace it or record it. And if they manage anyway, Kaipa pushed. Jenna turned serious. Then I will take responsibility. You are simply following my orders. Proceed with the transmission. Kaifa took the paper with the fake announcement and lifted the device. An informant with the Satera District Security Forces has confirmed the death of renowned actor Lasea Ketan in his home in Petor Valley, Satera District, Buftanis. Homicide has not been ruled out. He snapped the device closed. Jenna clapped him on the shoulders again. Now we wait. Something was different. Hoshi followed Pippa and the rest of their barracks outside. It was now stifling hot, with a deep blue sky clear of any clouds. The plants were getting big now. Weeds were still a threat, but watering and fertilizing were also part of the daily routine. It wasn't that the work was different. It was, in a sense, but Hoshi wasn't concerned with the work. She didn't care, really, what they had planted or were now tending. She was slightly interested in the final produce as a clue to the society of the world she and Malcolm were stuck in. She was most concerned with what Radagast and the other wizard were doing to her body, but since she had no control over that, she concerned herself with her mind. To keep sharp, she studied the culture, the interactions, the language, the politics she could witness from her position as slave and laboratory subject. So what was different was the way the females were acting not Pippa. She was again curious about where Hoshi had gone. The other, other juveniles were likewise unaffected. The mature ones, though, they sniffed her and then walked away, shaking their heads as if they had smelled something they didn't like. They kept it up, too. Any time one of them would pass her in their work or at lunchtime, she was sniffed and found, apparently, off-putting. And that made her wonder all the more what the scientists had done. When the bandages had come off, Malcolm was glad he had no mirror, and he pointedly avoided shiny surfaces that might inadvertently show him what he looked like. He could feel the stitches, though. 
an odd ring around his head, always at least a centimeter or two into his hairline. The scientists, it would appear, cared enough not to permanently mar his appearance, and he had to admit they were pretty good at plastic surgery. One would have to know where to look to find nearly invisible scars all over his body. The problem was that he did know where to look. They never removed the stitches. Eventually, a stubbly fuzz of hair grew back on his head until he could no longer feel the difference. He hoped that meant they were absorbable. Hoshi was back at work again. She'd tell him about what she saw and what she was doing when she wasn't too worn out to think. Of course, there was a time difference between them. It was early afternoon by the time she joined him in their minds. She had to spend her nights alone. He had to be alone in the mornings. It was morning now, and he missed her. There wasn't much to wake up to without her, but it was, in a small way, a relief as well. He had told her so many stories in the last couple of weeks that he worried he'd run out of good ones. He didn't want to burden her with the less happy memories of growing up. Mornings gave him time to find the good memories that he might share with her later in the day. Fortunately, as her days were becoming more routine, there was more conversation than storytelling. Malcolm enjoyed that in a way he never thought he would. He never just sat and talked for hours with a woman. Hell, he hadn't much with anyone since he was a child, except Tripp. Even then, Tripp did more of the talking. Malcolm had learned early on to keep to himself. It kept him safe, but it also kept him distant. Now he was talking with a woman half the world away about nearly every detail of his daily existence and listening as she shared about plants and people, the weather and such. All of it was fascinating. Beju returned a couple hours after breakfast. He had his hands full with a box and a long clear tube. Malcolm switched his thoughts to calling him Smeagol. Instruments could not mean anything pleasant. Another orc and a couple of the wizards came in after that, and Malcolm knew he was in trouble. And it was too early for Hoshi. When they approached his bed, he had to quickly decide whether or not to fight them. The odds were, as always, astronomically stacked against him. There were four of them, and he had only himself. They were in a closed room. He had no weapons and was in no shape for hand-to-hand combat. So he stayed still when they grabbed his ankles and arms. He didn't resist as they strapped his arms and chest. But he did close his eyes. He didn't want to know what they were going to do. Oddly, they only strapped down one leg. Only hands held his right ankle. Another hand rubbed some sort of cream onto his calf. It was cold, but not in the least painful. Malcolm became curious, then, when he felt the razor. It scraped over his skin, but did not cut or bite at all. He raised his head and watched as best he could as they shaved his leg from knee to ankle. He was even more curious when they opened the tube along its length and snapped it around the shaved area. He felt two hands tighten snugly around his ankle and just below his knee. Even with all they'd done to him up to this point, he couldn't imagine what they'd planned to do with his now-encased leg. Hoshi felt trapped. Her arms and chest were tied down, and one leg, something cold and smooth, was clamped around the other. She expected to see Radagast when she opened her eyes, but it was Saruman bending over her leg. Only it wasn't her leg. It was a man's leg. It was Malcolm's. Hoshi jerked awake. The heap lamps were still on and Pippa was still sleeping beside her. Her hands were beside her head as she lay on her side. It was a dream. She closed her eyes and told herself to get back to sleep. She worked too hard not to rest when she had the chance. 
Thankfully, Hoshi fell into dreamless sleep until she was awakened by the guards. As she stretched, she remembered the dream, odd in itself. She was seeing Malcolm's leg and Saruman was doing something. Malcolm, she thought as loud as she could. He, it seemed, was the telepathic one, so it was easier for him to initiate. Your turn, she heard back. Malcolm's voice was pinched and strained. For what? she asked. Malcolm, are they doing something to you? What? My leg, he replied. Burns. A story. His leg. That had to be something important in this whole telepathic thing they had going on. But now wasn't the time. Malcolm had told her stories during her procedures, and it was her turn. Well, she decided, I think my earliest memory was sitting on my bed listening to the maid talk to herself. She was Samoan, though I didn't understand that at the time. I was three and it was raining outside. She stepped into the bright sunshine and wished for a little of that rain. She hadn't seen or heard rain for weeks, at least not when she was working. She wasn't sure when she was with the scientists. Her room didn't have a window. Well, Mom came home and I told her some of the things I had heard. She didn't believe me. I'd tell her in Japanese, of course. Every week the maid would come and clean. She'd talk the whole time, and some t something other than my language. I think I used to think she was talking to me, telling me what she was doing or about her day, but that wasn't what I told my mother. The maid's brother was a drunkard, and her husband only encouraged him, smoking and drinking and such. If her man would get serious about life, maybe she could have an apartment like ours, and her sister-in-law could do, some, do the cleaning. Mother asked my sisters where I'd heard such a thing. They both swore they'd never heard the word drunkard before, and that the maid did talk all day, but they didn't know what she said. When the maid came in the next week, I started talking to her. I asked her what a drunkard was. She was surprised, but I guess she figured I had learned in school or something. She said not to worry about that and asked how school was instead. Mom came home right then, and I told the maid I don't go to school. Mom dropped her keys right on the floor. The maid just laughed and went back to work. After that, Mom dragged me to a school to be tested. Mom told Daddy how my hearing was off the charts and the language center of my brain was abnormally active for my age. I started hearing languages all around me. Mom put some on the computer and Dad had always liked Italian, so he taught me some. It was like music, all of it. Different music, but music. It started as noise until I could feel the notes, the syllables fall into place, until the melody, the grammar formed. Then they were laid out before me like a director with a score. I could see all the parts, picking out the harmonies. I could hear the words as if I had always known them. I would speak them, read them, write them. After that, it was private tutors, lots of them, all for different languages. Were your sisters jealous? Malcolm asked finally, not as pinched, but still tense. Not really, Hoshi admitted. They teased me. But eventually they found their own gifts. One is a mu musician and the other is a mathematician. Are they done? For now, he replied. On the bright side, it's better than being cut open. And on the not so bright side? I think they tested things on my leg. One felt like acid, another itched. Some were just cold and sticky. Hoshi wiped the sweat from her eyes and stretched her back while the adult females drank the water from the pail she carried over. I think I dreamed it, Malcolm. I think I dreamed what you saw. He was silent for a few minutes. Hoshi took the empty pail and started back for the spigot. Her arms were aching already. Intriguing. Can you see what I'm looking at now? 
Hoshi closed her eyes as the water filled the pail. She concentrated on his voice and tried to imagine what he could see. No, she replied and turned off the water. We'll have to work on that. He's physiologically much like our primates, Dr. Gieman stated after the first substance tests. So far, anyway, he's perhaps more fragile in this regard as he's not covered in dense fur. The acid was probably a given, Fishte said, alien or not. It had to burn such soft skin. It burns ours. He nearly choked on the pain. We needn't be so careless in the future. A local anesthetic could keep pain out of the question. He was remarkably calm under the circumstances, Burha agreed. But Beju didn't. He kept that to himself. Dr. Burha had neutralized the acid so that the alien would not likely have permanent damage, and the alien had not cried out. He had, though, tensed against the restraints. He was still stiff when they released him and left the room. The acid was stopped from damaging him further, but the damage that was done was still burning him. There were over 40 more substances planned, oils, bacteria, and plant enzymes. This experiment was assigned by the council. They would gain not only scientifically by observation, but militarily. By finding what on Sharu was damaging to the alien, it was hoped biological or chemical warfare could be designed against a potential invasion only raptors now believed even remotely possible. Not Kare, though. He figured the aliens were gentle since Beju often told him about the, what they had learned. Besides, he was more concerned about Shir Katisa and the upcoming turn. For months now, their breakfast conversation had been all about the aliens. Now, as no invasion had come, life had returned to some semblance of normal and the conversation diversified. Kare was more serious now, and Beju realized he was too. For Kare, it was Obek and the council and rising tensions between Jiren and Shir Katitsa. For Beju, it is what he was ha seeing in the alien's face, in his eyes. Of course, he did not have any reference for interpreting the alien's expressions except for non-sentient primates who couldn't tell him if they were sad or hurting either. Still, when he saw the alien, he couldn't help it anymore. He felt the alien was suffering, unhappy, bored at times, fearful and distrusting most of the time. If only he would talk so they could know and maybe ask questions to get answered instead of vivisecting him. It had only been a month since the election. Anish was so excited to have voted that he almost forgot to be disappointed his chosen candidate had not won. Besta had kept himself busy with work, though he complained in the evenings over dinner. Inish wasn't too worried, though. It was a free country, and all its citizens valued that freedom. No candidate could be so bad that Inish would wish he hadn't come to Buftanis. Still, he was quite surprised when the director announced the president-elect would be coming by for a visit. The sitting president hadn't, though, of course, he had been briefed. Farest Gudai arrived with a large security contingent, though only four came with him from the airship. The rest fanned out over the, over the grounds. Inish stood with Besta and the other scientists and looked hard at the lesser raptor who would soon be the leader of the country. Incredible. A lesser could never hope to lead anything in Jiren. Gudai was stiff and formal as he greeted the director. Then the director brought him over to stand directly in front of Besta. Dr. Besta defected decades ago, sir. He's likely the most brilliant geneticist in Fuftanis. 
Besta inclined his head. Thank you, sir, he said. I'm happy to be of service. And may I introduce our newest citizen here, Dr. Enish? Godai moved to stand in front of Enish. Enish felt flustered. He'd never even been in the council chambers before. He took his clue from Besta, though, and inclined his head. I'm very glad to meet you, President, sir. Oh, he hoped he said it right. Then he realized his mistake. Godai wasn't president yet. But do they call him president-elect to his face? He was mortified. But Godai just chuckled. Not bad for five months. You speak our language well. So you are the one who brought our guest. Yes, sir. It is only a female, but we hope to produce a male of our own soon. So I hear. And it's a primate? Incredible. I must see this creature. It is waiting for you in the genetics lab as we speak, sir, the director broke in. Dr. Besta will lead the way. Hoshi didn't know why she was taken from the field. It was too early for her period, though she did have cramps. For that, she was glad she wasn't working. Still, going to the lab before her period was not routine, and that did not bode well. And it was the lab she was taken to, not her little room where she spent her period. They shocked her as soon as they entered the corridor, and she went limp in the arms of her minders. They dragged her into the lab and laid her torso onto a table. They lifted her again, and her shift was pulled up, up over her head. That couldn't be good. Malcolm, she called out, hoping he was listening for her, that he was awake. The orcs dropped her back onto the table, then flipped her over onto her back so that she was facing the ceiling. She didn't understand it. Radagast and his buddy weren't even in the lab. She heard the door open and close and realized she was alone. Why had they brought her there, only to leave her lying naked on a lab table with no one else in the room? Malcolm, she called again. It was afternoon here, so it had to be evening there, late evening. He was probably asleep. Hoshi? He heard back. What's wrong? She let out a sigh. She was not alone after all. They brought me to the lab again. They took my clothes and left me here. I don't know why. Try not to think about it. You can't change it. You can only get through it. The door opened and Hoshi heard voices. Right this way, Ketakofadash. Hoshi didn't understand those last words. She felt the cold of the table beneath her, though, and tried to move her arms. They wouldn't move. She tried her legs. They were tied at the ankles. She felt the shock again and went limp. Here it is, sir. It was Grima again, not Radagast. Don't worry. It's restrained and immobilized. A new face appeared over hers. It was fierce-looking and full of long, sharp teeth. They're showing me off to someone. Do you want to find out who, Malcolm asked, or do you want to be distracted? He had a point. She was curious. And so far he was doing nothing other than looking. She'd had that and more in her first month in Jiren. Keta Kofidash were the words she didn't understand yet, but he was obviously important. Okay, just be ready. For now, he's just looking me over. Not fun, but I've had worse. As long as it stays like this, I want to learn what I can. Just never let them know you're learning. Of course. She turned her attention not to the faces, but only to the voices around her. As you can see, it is female. It is also bipedal and has five digits on each limb. She is bigger than our primates and has less hair, the newcomer interpreted, in most places. 
Yes, her head, of course, has quite long hair. Her genital area and underarms have shorter, coarser hair, more consistent with our primates, Grima said. Hoshi noticed he was doing all the talking. Radagast still had occasional flaws in his grammar. The new one was important enough to not let Radagast have a chance to mess up. However, Grima went on, she does have hair on most of her body. It is just shorter and finer. See here on her forelimbs. Hoshi felt hot breath on her skin. The shock was wearing off. She kept her eyes on the ceiling. He's important, she thought to Malcolm. He's not dressed like them, not a scientist. He's the same species as one of my guards. Does it speak? The new one asked. If it can, it has not, Grima replied. It has the capacity for vocal sounds, but has rarely made only monosyllabic sounds, and usually only while it sleeps. Grima had switched to a feminine pronoun for a bit, but now he had reverted back to the neutral it, as the newcomer had. And Jiren has a male. The new guy did not sound pleased. They do, Grima confirmed, but we are working on that. Hoshi's neck arched as the shock hit her again. That wasn't a good sign. She was strapped to the table, after all. She didn't need to be zapped unless they were going to do more than look. School is over, Malcolm. Distract me. Tell me a story. Inish removed the straps on the female's ankles as best explained their plan to clone the male. Not only then would they have a male, but they would also have an infant. They would be able to chart its growth from fetus to adult, but first they needed a fetus. Today, they would, as the president-elect looked on, check the status of the blastocyst they had implanted earlier. The camera had malfunctioned and had to be removed as well. They had not seen inside the female for a week. Inish positioned her knees and inserted the scope into her vagina. The image from the camera on the end of it flashed onto a display on the monitor beside the table. What it showed, however, was not the embryo they had hoped for. The view in the uterus was little different than before the female's menses. He could find no embryo, no blastocyst. There was blood on the lens. She was miscarrying. We have five more viable eggs, sir. Cloning is not an exact science. It took 16 tries before the first successful cloned mammal. Each case now seems to take less unsuccessful tries, and this female is fertile every 28 days. We could hit 16 tries in a little over a year. We we should certainly succeed by then. And why not simply fertilize her and create a natural infant? President-elect Godai asked. The male's sperm determines the gender, Vesta, Vesta replied as he helped return the female to her prone position. The female's eggs have only X chromosomes. The male's sperm may carry either X or Y. There is no guarantee of a male offspring. Godai looked thoughtful for a moment, then turned away. What else do we know about them? Biologically, quite a lot, even genetically. But sociologically, politically, and culturally, we know nearly nothing. Inesh nearly gasped when Godai turned to him. You've been with them longer. What do you know or even guess about them? Are they hostile? Hostile? Inesh responded, praying inwardly that he wouldn't mess up the grammar. No, I don't think so. Rarely even aggressive. The male only fought when he felt threatened or when the situation wanted to make him feel so. The female has proven quite quietly docile. She knows her place, it would seem, and does what she's told. And what does the male do day in and day out? He seemed to ignore the errors Anish knew he made in his grammar. 
Ennish thought more carefully about his words and his and word order. He tried to keep it simple. He is bored. He seems bored, and yet he willfully refuses engaging. He does not speak. He does not do anything. And what is Jiren doing with him now? Besta fielded that one, and Inish was glad. He did not like espousing guesswork in a language he was not fluent in. They are testing his reaction to various chemicals applied to the skin. Before that, they did an in-depth analysis of his brain. And they send you everything? Besta inclined his head. They send their findings. We do likewise. The president-elect paced a few steps away. See if you can get the data, not just the findings. You might see something they miss. One of the attendants stepped to, into the door. Sir, we need to be going if you're to make your next appointment. Godai waved him off, then took Besta's hand. It was good to meet you, doctor. Keep up the good work and get that male infant. The sooner we have it, the less we are dependent on Jiren. Then he was in front of Enesh again. I hope you're liking our country, he said as he took Enesh's hand. I am, sir, Enesh replied. This was not the candidate he had voted for, but he hardly seemed an ogre. He took his leave and was gone. Vesta waited until he was down the stairs. Damn! I know it was too much to hope we'd get it on the first try, but so soon? And when the next president visits? Well, that was chapter 15. It seemed kind of short. But some things happened in it. Let's go back up and to the top and go through the summary. So the first scene, we're with Je uh, Jenna and Kaifa, and they are putting out a fake statement on the communicator to see if anybody's listening. If somebody's listening, then uh, this actor who's not actually dead, somebody would say something about it. But, you know, if nobody's listening, nobody can hear it, then nobody will say anything, and that kind of, you know, will be their signal that, yeah, nothing on you know, on Sheru can uh, hear it. Hoshi notices a difference with the other uh, females, the adults. They sniff her and then, you know, give her kind of a look and then walk away. She's Something's putting them off. And then we move back to Malcolm, and it's been a while since the brain thing. And the he notices that the line of stitches are just inside his hairline so when his hair grows back it just kind of covers over and he hopes that that meant it means that they're dissolvable but then something new happens and the uh orcs come in and they put well they shave his leg from the knee down to the ankle and they put a tube around his a clear tube around his leg and then they apparently try different substances to see how he reacts where how his skin reacts and the interesting thing is that Hoshi dreams what's happening to Malcolm. She sees her leg, but turns out it's a male's leg. It's, it's Malcolm's leg. And she sees Saruman. She doesn't, you know, instead of uh, Radagast. And so she's confused, when, but she wakes up. And then she goes back to sleep because she's tired. But when um, she wakes up, She contacts Malcolm to see if he's okay, and he is having a tough time, and he asks for her to tell a story. And she shares one of her earliest memories where she actually understands her Samoan maid talk about her family, and she tries to tell her mother, but her mother doesn't believe her until one day she walks in, and she's talking with the maid in Samoan when she talks to her mother in Japanese. So... 
this is kind of how they start to figure out she's got something incredible going on. They have her tested and she's got an enlarged a, a part of her brain doing languages and she's got incredible hearing. And um, her sister, she says, aren't jealous. You know, they have their own gifts. One's a musician, one's a mathematician, and they do just fine. And then um, Malcolm tells her what's been going on. She tells him that she dreamed what he saw. They try a test where he tries to see if she can see what he sees right then, but she can't. And he says, we'll have to work on that. Then we go to Dr. Gieben and Dr. Bishte and Dr. Burha, all discussing the findings of their substance tests. They have 40 total to do, so this is only the first. But Beju's starting to feel like he can sympathize a bit with the alien and realize, you know, that he thinks he can interpret those in, in, um, expressions and the male is not happy, for sure. Um, and then we move to the, the uh, month after the election and the president... Uh, elect is going to come visit um, the the facility, and he does actually, and he compliments Radagast on his use of Bhutanesian, uh, and you know for five months he's doing pretty good. Hoshi is taken from the field and brought into the lab, put on the table, zapped, and all that um, before Radagast and and uh, Grima even come into the room. So it's the other, it's like guards and stuff putting her, you know, prepping her. And when Radagast and, and Grima do come in, they have this other person with them and they call him Keta Kofadash. And she doesn't know what that means. That's going to be president-elect or some kind of title like that. But she has no reference for that yet. And she's able to see his face and she sees that it's like one of her guards. It's one of the raptors. It has these big, long teeth. Whereas the wingeds have beaks, so they don't have teeth. And um, Malcolm asks if she wants to be distracted or if she wants to learn. And she decides at first, or they're just looking at her, she's going to learn. But they do put a um, camera up her vagina to look at her uterus. And they find that she has um, miscarried. And so they're kind of embarrassed because it's right in front of the president-elect that they find this out. But, you know, they point out that, you know, cloning is not exact. It's not easy. And they, you know, weren't going to get it likely on the first try. And they've got five more to try. And she's fertile every 28 days. So they, you know, can always try again. And could I ask why they don't um, just fertilize her with, you know, to do a natural, do it the natural way and get an infant? And they say, well, we can't be sure to get a male. They really want a male infant. And if they did it the natural way, there's a 50-50 chance that they'd get a female. And they don't want that. So President-elect, before he leaves, also also asks uh, Anish about the male and what he's doing. And he asks, do they get the data from the, uh, what they get from the Jiren scientists and they get the findings. He suggests they try to get the data so they can try to draw their own findings and see if they come up with something different. And he leaves because he has other appointments to get to. And Besta is upset that it had to be, you know, he, it was too much to hope to get it on the first try. But so soon it failed. And in front of the next president, that's kind of bad. And so that's where we are. So halfway through the story now. And... 
I don't remember a whole lot of my thinking process as I was writing this um, because it's so long ago, but I'm still kind of just impressed by all the details that apparently I just kept thinking of <laughs> or the magic kept giving me um, to put this now second political system together with, you know, and populate it with people that do their thing that they do you know so a new character had to be created will we see much more of him maybe not but you know people in the story and this is one thing i believe about uh original characters and i've said this here before original characters when they're done well are just the other people in the story but you you to do them well to make them just those other people you have to make them real, full characters. We haven't seen much of Forrest Gudai, but he seems well enough. He doesn't seem like a cardboard cutout. He seems like he has a personality, like he has he has ideas, and like he, you know, he'd just been elected president. So he's got plans he's thinking of. So even he, this may be the only time we really spend with him, even he had to be a full character. And he comes off that way. He doesn't come off as a cardboard cutout original character that you can snarf at, snarf, scoff at. He he seems real. Besta is Besta and Inish are very real to me now, and they were when I wrote them. And you know, there's a lot of original characters in this story, but they are all characters. They are all the other people in the story. Because right now the only canon characters we have are Hoshi and Malcolm and they're on a whole world full of people so some of them have to be created some of them have to be active in this story and they all have to be four-dimensional three-dimensional whatever <laughs> they have to be real people and the closest ones to our characters Hoshi and Malcolm need to be the most real and that may be close as in Hoshi and Pippa and maybe Malcolm and Beiju but it's also just close in proximity in proximity to Hoshi is Grima and Radagast in proximity to Malcolm is Saruman Bishte Smeagol Beiju um Lertz I believe is Burha <laughs> and I don't know if he's given Gibbon um one yet but <laughs> I don't even know if he's given Hineth one either at that to put it that way, but those particular orcs and because Beiju is rather important, Kare has to be a full character as well, because Kare is his friend, his best friend, and we've seen him from the beginning. So it's important that when you create your original characters that you make them full and you know individual people but just the other people in the story in this case none of the original characters are the primary characters of this story the primary characters are Reed and hoshi but that doesn't mean that an original character can be can't be the the main character of a story and still not come off as a bad original character I like to think Ina Coriel's story, Myth and Memory, does a good job at creating Bob, 
No, he's never named in the story, so it's just kind of fun to call this Roharim guy some silly name like Bob, <laughs> okay? But it's a per first-person story, so I, he has to come off as a real guy. And I think I, we did a good, pretty, pretty good job of making it after we found the right voice for him. He kind of gelled, and we get to know him and his friend Yonwen through the story of watching Legolas. Now, Legolas is the canon character most, you know, in that story, and yet he's never in the position of main character. He's the object of the story. And so he becomes another person in the story, and the original character is the main character. But he comes off as real, and that's the important part. He does not save the day. He does not you know, get all the girls. He, he's not an important guy at all. He's a young door warden thrust into this fight for survival at the time of the attack from Isengard. And that's it. He's a young guy. He's maybe like a, a an older teenager. You know, he's not a little kid at the time. Now, he is an older mm -hmm. man an adult man telling the story back, but he was a young guy. He was not like nine or 10. He was maybe 17 or 18, something like that, him and Yanwen, when they went, you know, thrust into that. They didn't choose that adventure. <laughs> it, it chose them and it cost Yanwen his life. And I think that is a good case, a good example of a story where you have a main character who is an original character, but who feels like he legitimately belongs in that world, in that world, in that time. So you, you've got to make them belong there. If I'd made him um, another brother of Theodred, that would have thrown everything off because Aomer wouldn't become the next king. This, this, this guy would because he would be a son of the king, not a, uh, a nephew to the king. So original characters where you throw them in where they don't fit, throwing in a woman in the fellowship doesn't fit, throwing in an extra prince doesn't fit, but Hama couldn't be at the door 24 hours a day. There had to be shifts, and young people had to start working their way up into posts, and so he is a young door warden. It makes it a nice place to enter him. And it's noticeable because we remember Hama was at the door. So we know what a door warden is. He's not just some farmer kid who wouldn't be, you know, any have any training to fight. He's expected to fight as a door warden. So, he, you know, he it's a it's a good place for him to fit and have enough exposure to the elf without being right in there at the council table with Aragorn, you know what I mean? So you got to make them fit in the place and time where they're going to be. Okay, off that soapbox. Um, back to this story and all of these original characters. I hope that you feel like you are getting to know them and I hope it completely skipped your notice that they were original characters. 
that's how they should be. If they're good, you don't notice them. They are just the other people in the story. That's the way they should be. So, even if they're only going to flit in and out for one time, like President Goodeye, President-elect Goodeye, <laughs> flit in, flit out, be real, and then gone. Still, it has to be. It has to be to make sense and to make it work. Um, Hinath is somebody we don't spend a lot of time with, but we already kind of know some about him, right? We already got a sense of his character. And he's definitely not as good as Beju, <laughs> right? Um, so, yeah, it, it's, they're just the other people in the story. That is the way you want your, your original characters to be, where people don't start out going, oh my god, that's an original character. They just accept them as the other people in the story. That's what you want. Okay, well, that's enough for today. And um, hopefully I'll be able to come back tomorrow and just keep doing this every day till we can get through it 15 more days to get to chapter 30. Chapter 30, I think, is going to be quite short at the end of the story. It's almost more of an epilogue. Um, but we'll go ahead and record it and maybe do a commentary like on the whole story or something. But um, otherwise, we'll keep doing it like we're doing it. What I'm finding is that I don't have a lot of gruesome in this story, despite the vivisection. We only really went into it with the characters that first time. Every other time it's been talked about. So I don't really have to do that summary at the beginning of the commentary here. But I've been doing it for this story, so I'm kind of like just going to keep doing it for this story. Um, I don't didn't do it for every other story, but I have been doing it for this story because we had those chapters that did have the gruesome. But it doesn't seem like there's a whole lot of that in this story after all. And that's pretty interesting for a story that's meant to be about vivisection. <laughs> um, well, it's not all about vivisection, but it's definitely supposed to be highly involved with vi vivisection. And it has been. Malcolm has been vivisected quite a few times by this time. And, um, but some people may find it kind of squicky, the, the things going on with Hoshi when I mention things like uteruses and fallopian tubes and vaginas. Yeah, some people might, um, be a little blushy about that. Um, but those are the clinical terms for these things, and so that's what I wrote. I didn't have to call, you know, it's scientists talking about this stuff, you know, so I don't have to come up with euphemisms. They will call it what it is because they're scientists, right? So that's what I have to write, and that's what I have to read. Okay, well, see you tomorrow for chapter 16. We'll start the second half of this story. If you would like to drop me a line, I would love to hear it. You can tweet me at Inhildi, I-N-H-E-I-L-D-I, or email me at Inhildi at gmail.com. All right, see you tomorrow.